6. It's also printed in your program. I use an English Standard Version, but you're going to find that the NIV and others are very, very close. Don't let it throw you. Psalm 26, and we note that this of David, so authorship is directly attributed to David, though David is not the author of all the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are more often than not a prayer that was sung or a praise chorus, even such that we have heard songs this morning. Psalms would have been sung in the sanctuary or in the temple. You would hear them around the ancient tabernacle as they were uh, written and included in Israel's worship. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I have uh, started reading a book at Barnes & Noble. Some of you know I have a practice of where I'll go and I'll buy their coffee and I'll read the books without buying the book. And uh, so systematically, uh, I can work through all the books at Barnes & Noble while having coffee coffee, but um, my particular tastes run more in history or in true-to-life uh, biographies, and there was one that was in the new nonfiction section for the longest time, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, and uh, I couldn't find it this last week as I was still reading through it, and so I very humbly went over to the information, and they say, well, uh, what is it that you want? I said, I've looked in history. I've looked in biography. You've obviously taken it off the, the new uh, nonfiction shelf. So where is it? And they looked it up and they said, oh, it's under true crime. And so I thought, ooh, I've never, I've never read. Uh, I don't normally go to that section because of the, you know, the blood and the gore and the, the crime. But here's the subtitle of The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by Mark Seal. The subtitle is, the Astonishing Rise and Spectacular Fall of a Serial Imposter. Um, it's very interesting that this man came into New York and he began to um, pose as Clark Rockefeller. Now his real name is Christian Gertzentrammer and he's an immigrant from Germany. Now we're talking about something in less than 10 years ago, 2001, he begins to parade through New York and begins to get included to the, the, the most, you know, the art uh, shows and the parties and the, the opening of the opera, and he's always very well-dressed. 
And he's worked so on his English, as one person said, when he spoke, you could tell that he was from the manor born. And he would typically wear khakis. He would wear a, a white button-down shirt. He would have the, the, the regi- Reginald, uh, you know, the, the, the red and black uh, tie that was kind of loose around his neck, a blue blazer, uh, glasses, and topsiders with no socks. That he was just, he, he would act a little eccentric. And the place that he would always begin, because he had become an imposter, not only in uh, New York, but also in Connecticut, and prior to that in Los Angeles, the place that he always began was the church. He always, in the church, as a single man, would introduce himself to the minister, and he would attend every service, and he would be sure to attend the refreshment time, if they have one, after church. And as he did in New York at the Episcopal Church there, at their coffee time afterwards, he, people would inquire about him, and he would always announce who he was. And they just made the assumption that that would, have been, that would be such a huge lie to prop up that nobody would, everybody would see through that. He was incredibly smart, but he got away with it by not only being invited into prominent places and circles in New York, but by actually marrying a debutante. And so the book is, is just a fascinating read. But listen to just one comment, as this is a reporter who is writing this, because he's now, uh, 2008, 2009, he finally was starting to be uh, drugged into court. Here's what one person interviewed said. He always had a story, and it always concerned wealth of how he was better than we was. We were. He was more affluent than everybody there, and how he had such a great lineage. And although he was shorter than me, he always had the attitude that he was looking down at you. Although he was shorter than me, he always had the attitude that he was looking down at me. Well, he was an imposter. And as we look at Psalm 26 this morning, it crosses the mind of many a Bible student as they read Psalm 26 that David is self-righteous. In fact, some commentators, they start off with that interpretation of Psalm 26. That as David writes this, he is well on his way to being a Pharisee or to being someone who justifies his actions before God and thus merits God's favor by his actions. Self-justifying or self-righteousness, being so right in many areas of our life that it would earn God's favor. Well, I'm glad to tell you that that was not the reformers' view of this psalm. What they saw was as they came to this psalm, they do not know exactly what the case is. But David is being treated wrongly. There are those who are conniving against him. There are those that are, uh, like maybe it was Saul who was jealous after him and spoke ill of him. Maybe it was his own son Absalom when they were separated. Absalom seeking the throne of David and was saying, I'm a better king than he is. Uh, but he's seeking to be vindicated among those that he sees as evildoers who are hurtful to him. 
And he does not, because of some association that he has with them being king, he does not want to be lumped in together with them. So I want to tell you this morning two things, as this is a summer short sermon. I want to tell you two things, have you look at two things. Number one, I want you to see what is self-justification. I mean, we need to know what it is if we're going to say that David is not doing it. So what is self-justification? What is self-righteousness? Do we have any in our life? Do we struggle with that? Is it even a part of our life, or is it only really just kind of the religious erudite that really struggle with self-righteousness? And then secondly, after seeing what self-justification is, I want to show you why this psalm isn't. And then we'll end up at our table where God will feed us by his presence and his grace. So without further ado, what is self-justification? If you'll turn to Luke 10, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, it says there that a lawyer stood up Luke 10, verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, what do I need to do? What do I need to have? What, do I, what does my record need to, to look like and reflect in order to have eternal life with God in the heavens? He said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read the law? How do you read what God has said? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, with the conclusion being, my neighbor are those people in my sphere of influence or who cross my path who are vessels in need of mercy. They're people that I encounter in life. In other words, everyone that I encounter is my neighbor in some sense. The, the teacher of the law was wanting to restrict it. He was wanting to basically downsize God's law. And if he could downsize God's law, then he could minimize also his sin. I know that many of us might say today, I don't cheat on my taxes, I don't, I don't beat, beat up children, I don't kick puppies, I don't do any of those bad things. So I don't, I don't, look, I don't do bad things like that. So I'm better than most of these people over here in this category that do that. That is one step into self-justification. You see, self-justification will claim, it can claim, I am a Christian, but I'm not as bad a sinner as this person over here. And we do that because we look at their sin, we, we look at that and we say, wow, they're committing some particular thing. And because I'm not, I'm judging myself on the basis of them. And then Christ comes to us and he says, look, you've read the law here, but this law is not to be so downsized and so restricted so that you can have, as it were, uh, something that is comfortable. 
but it's to be expansive such that it's dependent upon the very power of God to fulfill. In other words, you can't justify yourself. Let me give you a test. I am convinced that every one of us justify ourselves, that we can do it in like a nanosecond. Self-justification is the heart that seeks to be right. It seeks to be vindicated. It seeks to appear correct in just about all matters. When was the last time that you defended yourself? When was the last time you made an excuse? When was the last time that you minimized your sin by even comparing it to others? When was the last time that you downsized what you know to be God's requirements or His holy will for your life? When was the last time you said, that's not my fault. I don't see David in this scripture so much uh, downsizing it as he's separating himself and he's saying, I see that there's this these group of people over here that are doing these things. If you look at his list there, turning back to Psalm 26, he says in verse 4 and 5, I don't sit with men of falsehood, I don't consort or have traffic or enter entertainment with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I'll not sit with the wicked. What he's, what he's doing here is he's looking at these people and he's saying, I identify that there's, there's a group of people that are not godly. And I'm not passing judgment on them, but I'm wanting to not have my identity with them. And so, therefore, my association is biblically driven. If I have to do business with them, I have to do business with them, but I'm not to be, I don't want to be associated with them, God. I don't want people to say, I've seen you with them, so you must just be like them. Lord, I'm not wanting to simply vindicate and save face with men, but I just want to remind you, as it were, in this prayer, and I want you to shore up my heart, that I'm not one of them. Am I? And by that, if you'll look up, let me have you turn to one more passage. Matthew 21. Verse 31. Now this is, this is the end of the parable of the two sons. And one son was told to go and to do something. It was the requirements of the father. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And then he did not do it. And then another son was told to go do something. And here he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And he said, the first. Now, the first one was the one that he told, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I won't. And then he changed his mind, and he did. The second one was the one that said, I will and he didn't do it. There's also, in Revelation 3, a church called the church in Sardis, knowing the requirements of God, basically broadcasting that they would be faithful to God, and they did this work, but their heart was far from the Father. And here he's saying that we all have that capability within us, that looking at the Father's requirements we will have a tendency to either minimize our sin, it's really nothing bad, or 
we'll downplay the law, we'll be, we have that tendency to justify ourselves before God. And that way, we live for ourselves. All right, I've got to leave this point. I want to ask you two questions, though, to think about. Think about right now, think about one thing that God requires. It can be a command, it can be an ordinance, it can be a requirement. Okay? Think about one thing that God requires right now, and you do it well. You do it really well. Okay? Do you ever boast about that? Even if it's just in your own mind, it just gives you a really good feeling. I, you know what? I don't do all things well, but this one requirement of God, I really do well. Do you boast about it? Do you criticize other people who don't do it well? You got the self-justification bug if either of those are true. Secondly, think of one thing that God requires of us, and there are many. Think of one thing that God requires of us, and you, more often than not, you do not do that well. In fact, you're a failure at that. Do you, what do you do? Do you ignore it? Do you ignore it and just say, I just, I just, I'll, I'll never do that? Or do you compare what you do in another area and say, this compensates for that? For instance, you know, God knows my finances. He knows. And it's just, you know, I, I understand that he requires the tithe. But you know what? I just, I, not now, not now. I just, I'm not going to do it. In fact, you know, I know that there are people and they tithe, they probably tithe big in the church. But they just don't, they just don't, they're not as friendly as I am. Or they're not as, they don't minister to the, the, the outcasts like I do or the homeless like I do. I'm kind of, I do all of those things, but this over here I don't do as well. You compare yourself with others. I don't see David doing either of those things in the scripture here. Therefore, when I look at David, what I see is if you look at verses 2 and 3, he says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And some of you might have a footnote there for mind, and it's the word for kidneys, reins. It's, the, it's where they actually believe that the, the thought process took place. The heart represented the emotional side, and, uh, the, and then the, the mind was found in the kidneys. That represented your, your, your intellect. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, Lord, I want you to know that I'm trying to walk in integrity. In fact, I do walk in integrity. And I walk in integrity, and my walk does not include walking with all of these folks over here. They have a different walk. But as I walk in integrity, and the things that I do, I want you to search me. I want you to test me. See, if David was self-justifying, if he was self-righteous, he would never ask for that. He would say, I'm a Christian and I'm not so much a sinner. If you're a Christian, you have to say, I'm a sinner. Now, one that is saved and experienced a new life through Jesus Christ, but we're still sinners. We're sinner saints, as it were. David is saying, you know, Lord, I'm doing these things, and I'm, I'm, I am walking in integrity, but would you look, because I can deceive myself, would you look and basically see why I'm doing what I do? Because the reason that I would do what I would do is 
not to earn. Look at verse 3. Look at the placement there. What comes first, steadfast love or walk? Steadfast love. And so he's saying, I'm not doing these things for your love. I'm doing these things from your steadfast love. We, this word, steadfast love, whenever it appears in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a covenant language term. It's a covenant language term where God says, I love you so much that you will be mine forever, and I will be yours forever. And not even your sin will be able to separate yourself from me because of an acceptable sacrifice. And we know that to be Jesus Christ. That he binds himself as a father would bind himself to a son. And so he's saying, as I contemplate your steadfast love, that's what fuels my walk after you. I walk this way because I love you. I walk in integrity, which means not simply perfection, but wholeness. I try to have all of my life to be sound and to, to meet your requirements, to reflect what it's like to be a son or a daughter. But I don't know. Lord, maybe I'm deceiving myself. Maybe I'm really doing it for what other people think. You've got a couple of choices. In verse 5, he could be saying, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and the reason that I do what I do is I hate evildoers, so I'll never be one. Oh, I hate people that, I, I hate people that, that do that kind of thing, whatever that evil is judged to be. I had a, um, I had a phone call on Friday, and uh, a lady that I did not know called, and I could tell she was trembly in her voice. And uh, she said, are you the, the preacher? And I said, yes, I'm Pastor Phil Stockton. And she says, I've got a question to ask you. She said, should I divorce my husband in order to, be, to get back to God? And I said, no, I don't understand the question. And she says, did I commit adultery marrying my husband? And she gave me a little bit more of her background. She's attending a church that knows her history or has learned her history, that she was married, that she stepped outside the, the covenant bounds of marriage and, and, and committed an act of adultery. Her husband subsequently divorced her. She subsequently got remarried. And now that church says, in order to be right with God, because you've committed adultery, you need to divorce the husband that you're married to, and then, then you'll be right with God. Do you believe that? No. <laughs> she sounded very, very much, and she said that she now is even looking to take medication because she's so anxious about this. I suspect, I couldn't get this out of the conversation, time was short, but I couldn't get this out of the conversation, I only suspect that she's a very new believer, a very new believer. And her church, or the church that she's attending now, is telling her something that she must do. Something that she must, she must hate, uh, she must not be a member of that hated group, the adulterers or the divorcees. And, and in order to do, to finally get right, you've got to undo something that you did wrong trying to, to get back. And I found it very difficult, surprisingly, to talk to her about the gospel, to talk to her about grace, to talk to her about mercy. I, she, she just, she wanted to focus so much about, oh no, 
then, then you too believe that God is going to judge me, and he's already judging me, and I've, I've got this problem, and I've got this problem, and, I, and I, I don't want to divorce my husband because I love my husband. I think you don't have to. Let's start and let's focus on God's grace where you are. Let's, let's focus on the, 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 the forgiveness that he offers us right now where you are. You don't have to go back. So was David, when he was writing this, was he saying, look, I'm going to, um, Lord, I am so concerned about my reputation with you that um, I'm going to live a life of integrity because I, A, hate evildoers. Is that what he's saying in verse 5? Is he saying, B, no, I'm going to walk in the way of integrity because of verse 8. I love the habitation of your house. I love church. And yes, there's some people that actually love church. Um, C, is he saying it because of verse 9, he has a fear of death. Some of your Bibles will say, uh, do not gather my soul away with sinners. But it's sweeping out the house. It's basically saying, Lord, when you gather us home, when you, when you sweep us from this life into the next life, is he saying, I live a life of integrity because I don't want to be swept out with wicked doers and evil ones. In other words, a fear of death. Or is it, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness, that that's why I walk. I walk because of the love that you've shown me, because of the mercy that you've shown me. That's what directs my feet. That's the path that I'm going to, to walk in. Uh, time doesn't permit me, but you have a you have an odd title this morning. Self-justification at the sink. There's a verse there where it says, at verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. If you look on your own times to Exodus 30, Beginning around verse 17, you'll find that one of the articles of furniture in the, in the tabernacle. Now, at this time of writing, there would have been a great tent called the Tent of Meeting. There was no brick-and-mortar uh, temple yet. But outside of the Holy of Holies in the courtyard area, there was a huge altar. And that altar was used for the, the, primarily the burnt offering. And in between that burnt offering altar and the temple where, or the tabernacle where the priests met with God there at the mercy seat, there was what's called a laver or a great basin, a sink as it were. And that they were instructed that every time you go from one to the other, wash your hands. In other words, coming from the burnt offering and the sacrifices being burnt and and, and God is receiving the death of an innocent animal in my place. And as, as that, that sacrifice is being conducted, then I'm to come to the laver and wash my hands and then go into the tent and meet with God. Or as I come from meeting with God and I'm getting ready to go back into life and into the world, I wash my hands again, not washing my hands of God, but communicating as the Bible says about that washing, it's to symbolize innocence, a declaration of innocence, that this sacrifice is in my place. And then to come from the temple, I have met with God, and now I'm going to walk as one. 
I would wash away everything in my life that's not of God. I'm going to walk as one that's a new creature. This term for this labor here where it says, I wash my hands in innocence, that term of washing in the New Testament becomes the term baptism. Baptism. The washing away, as it were, of the old. And we do that again and again, even as we come to this table. I'd like for you now to begin to think. Think of your own heart and think of your own ways. Am I just living off my reputation? When I stand before God, do I just justify myself? Do I put forward my record? Or do I first lay claim to the new record that I have in Christ? Do I claim Christ is the reason? Christ is the reason that I can both have fellowship with God. Christ is the reason that I would not engage, as it were. We're not talking about business. We're not talking about living in the neighborhood. We're talking about intimate fellowship with darkness. Christ is the reason that I have fellowship with light. I don't want that. But continue to search my heart. And in those areas surface, and I would wash my hands, as it were, anew. Prompted, prompted because of the sacrifice that was made in my place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, I pray that you would set aside these humble elements and that they would feed us by your grace. They would feed us, as it were, from your death on the cross. That to look at that is not to turn away and to weep, but to stare and to weep with all joy of what you have done in our place. You did not justify yourself, but you came and you took that in our place. And now, Father, as we come to this table, we come to this table because of your steadfast love, and we would draw strength from this that we might walk in integrity as well, prompted not because of how we would have other people to see us with approval, but prompted how we are now in your sight. To this end, feed us, we pray in Christ's name.